You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I hope the skies will lighten up by and by. I have never seen a day since I consented to drift with events that I have not cursed myself. Yes, Grover Cleveland was not feeling delighted about his second non-consecutive term for the presidency of the United States. We learn about that in history. He's the only president to have a non-consecutive term, meaning someone else, Benjamin Harrison, was president in between his two one-terms for the presidency. What we don't learn about often is that that second term, was a really rough ride, and it started really before he even got into office. High unemployment, business failures, all as he gave his speech. The existence of immense aggregations of kindred enterprises and combinations of business interests formed for the purposes of limiting production and fixing prices is inconsistent with the fair field which ought to be open to every independent activity. As he's saying these words, and not feeling great about the situation that he's in, he also had noticed something on the roof of his mouth, which didn't seem to be normal. A hard spot, and when his wife, Frances Cleveland, would investigate, she would call it a peculiar lesion. He ignored it. He had a lot of work to do, keeping a country financially sound, appointing a lot of people to office in those first months. But it was keeping him up at night, and after a few months, the size of this lesion had grown to a noticeable extent. But what to do? President was a calming figure. A news story about his health might cause further panic. It's not just like, okay, because why? The president's health would, yeah, even today, that's something like that might cause some one-day change in financial markets. It's not just that. He's a supporter of hard money, a very vocal supporter. A lot of people in the Democratic Party to which he belongs are not. And so his health has a particular meaning in 1893. But what to do? He consulted the White House physician. Well, it was actually R.M. Riley, the officer who attended to all government officers in Washington, D.C. as part of the Army. He looks at the lesion, doesn't think it's particularly good, takes a small piece of it and sends it to a pathologist without naming who the person is. Pathologist reports back that it's cancerous. And a secret plan is arranged. Cleveland will go on a boat trip, a fishing trip to Cape Cod on his good friend's yacht. He had done this before. When they board, six physicians will board along with him. After the boat goes across 
Long Island or out in the sea, they'll take down to the parlor of this yacht where all the furniture's been removed except for a special chair, and the physicians will go to work. They etherize the present. They give him nitrous oxide, best equipment of 1893. They then removed five of his teeth and part of his jawbone and the tumor. To preserve his image to the public, we know now, if it, what little you know of Grover Cleveland is even that mustache, they used a special cheek refractor device and did not cut open his mouth, which preserved his mustache. To give that full look, they replace his jaw with a piece of vulcanized rubber. Bruce, I have been to see the tumor that they <laughs> took out of Grover Cleveland's mouth wow. when he was president off the coast of uh, New York City on a yacht, and they had to go back out and take it out twice. But the tumor is in the uh, museum, the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. Go, go see it. It's really exciting. That's uh, Brian Lamb who is president of C-SPAN, and Susan Swain, vice president of C-SPAN, who joined me on this episode. And they talk a little bit about Grover Cleveland. We're going to talk about other presidents, their ranking of presidents. But yes, uh, you can go check that out. The tumor that was cut out is, is, is there in Philadelphia. No one notices. Obviously not a modern time. You don't have TV. There are reporters, though. And one of the things that happens is there's kind of a medical grapevine, and this is where... There's a problem, and and in the medical grapevine, doctors talk to each other, and these six physicians, while they didn't talk to the press, they do talk to each other, and the story gets on the medical grapevine, and eventually in Philadelphia, Philadelphia press reporter Edwards hears of this, tracks it down, and eventually confirms with Ferdinand Hasbrook, the dentist who removed the teeth and who did the anesthesia. Cleveland's going to condemn to a friend this violation of the medical profession and his oath. But that's the closest we ever get from Grover Cleveland himself ever of admitting that this whole thing happened. The White House denies the story. Cleveland denies the story. They actually use friendly press to denounce Alicia Edwards as a disgrace to journalism. Here's what the New York Times says, and not about Edwards, but we'll have no more of this talk of cancerous growth. In a story in which they say that it was the president had a, a minor dental issue. Secretary of War denies the story. Everyone's denying that this happened. It's 24 years later, 10 years after Cleveland's death, that the head physician for this operation confirms the story in a newspaper. He had felt guilty that Alicia Edwards, uh, you know, his career had been damaged. Now, Alicia Edwards did continue to write. He wrote for the Wall Street Journal, other places, but there was always this covering him, this kind of like false fake news accusation of 1893 that uh, was hovering over uh, Edwards. So eventually the story does come out after there's a kind of release of of the the bond of secrecy, perhaps, after Cleveland's death. Just one of the many stories that are in this particular book, The Presidents, by Brian Lamb, Susan Swain, and C-SPAN with special contributions by Douglas Brinkley, Edna Green Medford, and Richard Norton Smith. Edited and created by C-SPAN, and it's published by Public Affairs. And I was very pleased to be able to get to talk to them. Here with Brian Lamb and Susan Swain of C-SPAN. Very excited to have them on. I'm a huge fan of C-SPAN. I've been watching for quite some time. I mean, 
more than 20 years. I think in 1997, I actually went down to the offices and they gave me a small tour of the. Uh, How about that? <laughs> that's very nice. <laughs> I hope I hope they charged you for it when you were here. <laughs> we're a nonprofit, you know. We have to make it where we can. I'll go with a no comment. They are the authors of "The Presidents: Noted Historians Rank America's Best and Worst Chief Executives." Thanks so much for coming on. Glad to be here, Bruce. I must point out, though, that if you want to know the truth about our book, it's the genius of Susan, who is the editor of this book. I just did the interviews. The stars of our book are the authors. The historians, yes. And let me add my thanks for your interest in having us on. Oh, sure. I think one of the great things about this book is in addition to rankings, which you know we'll get into a bit in discussion of that, it's, it's a favorite American pastime, it seems, ranking presidents. But you also have commentary from Douglas Brinkley, I love him, Edna Green Medford, Richard Norton Smith, and many other historians who are going to provide context. Yeah, in some ways, this book is a compendium of some of the biggest contemporary presidential historians. The whole concept is that they are drawn from C-SPAN interviews, and we craft them into essays. But the thing that's different about this book from past collections that we've done is that we organize them by the president's place in their rankings. So it's not a linear travel through time, but mm-hmm. in fact, you move from one era to another, and the, the unifying factor is the leadership skills of the president being profiled. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. When you're reading a, a presidential ranking book, as opposed to just a straight-up history book, you do have that advantage, that you don't have to go in the normal chronological order. Talk a bit about how the rankings were conducted. Uh, for this book, uh, there's many different ways to rank presidents. People have their own in their head, and there's there's a couple different ways to do it. One is simply to ask historians, "Who's your favorite president?" and you get one set of results. As I understand it, this is this is more complex. Yes, um, if you don't mind, Brian, I'll tell the story, and you can I mind, I it. mind, I mind. <laughs> so, in the year 1999, uh, we spent the entire year going on location to all the presidential, the president's birthplaces, or historic sites attached to the president, and did individual live programs on the life of each uh, each president. It was a huge undertaking for us. When we were finished, we said, we have to put a capper on this somehow. And the idea came about to go to our our historians to help us put a more formal assessment on the president's roles and their their conduct of their job. So uh, we have three historians. We have many, but we have three historians who have really had a special friendship with this network over the years. They are uh, the folks that you just mentioned, Douglas Brinkley, Richard Norton Smith and Edna Green Medford, each with their own set of specialties. And uh, they were on board with this project. We spent a lot of time arguing in a great way over what 10 metrics would be to judge a president's performance. And um, when we finally agreed on those, we went to 100 historians, sent the survey out, and we really tried to, I should say they were historians plus professional observers of the presidency. So long-time political reporters who had brought a lot of context and history to the job might be included. But we also wanted a difference in demographic, uh, age, uh, political persuasion. So we were really trying to, to have a broader view of, a, of the president's performance. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This first survey in the year 2000, uh, just as Bill Clinton was leaving office, really was interesting. It, it served its purpose of putting a capper on our, our series, but it got so much attention that the next time a president was leaving office, we said, why not do it again? So uh, as George W. Bush left office in 2009, we conducted it once more, and we're going to continue it into the foreseeable future. Yeah, and, and you have uh, yeah you have a version out now that includes Barack Obama. You did not include Donald Trump. He's still president, so I can I can understand um, I can understand that methodology. It's not finished yet, uh, and but um, you did include the. Barack Obama, George Bush, Bill Clinton. What do you think about that factor of recency? Any thoughts on how that might affect ranking, if if any? Sure. It does, in fact, uh, create uh, – uh, you don't get the long view, and we know that. But what we're trying to do with this is put a marker in the ground for what historians' first assessment is of their performance in office. And what's really interesting is watching how it will change over time. So Bill Clinton, for example, he's moved six places since he left office. It was right on the heels of his impeachment process. Uh, George W. Bush, in the years since we put him in the survey for the first time, he's only moved one spot, and he continues to do pretty poorly in areas where you wouldn't be surprised, economic management and international relations. Yeah, it's interesting. When you split up the rankings like that, if you ask historians, you know, who's your favorite president? Someone like a Nixon goes very far to the bottom on those type. If you give them a little nuance and say, uh, uh, how are they on foreign policy? Well, it's hard to argue that Nixon had achievements there. So then, then they rise up. And so you have a, you have an interesting mix because I don't want to give away all your rankings, but I, I, I think I'm, it's fair to say, uh, Nixon is not, is not last. That's right. And, and in fact, it's fine to share them. They're even on Wikipedia and on our own website. We, we want people to talk about these rankings and how they feel the historians have done. But it's, in fact, if you don't mind, I would, wouldn't mind sharing the 10 metrics that the historians use. Sure. Uh, public persuasion, crisis leadership, economic management, moral authority, international relations, administrative skills, Relations with Congress, vision, and setting an agenda. Somehow I always think of George H.W. Bush and that vision thing when that one comes up. Um, <laughs> pursued equal justice for all. That's been an interesting one for an, a lot of presidents, in the uh, certainly over time. And then the last one, our historians thought this was most important, uh, even though it's ranked equally. Performance within the context of the times. So that is a bit of a safety valve for looking back on presidents and how society has changed. And perhaps they did the best they could with the conditions surrounding them is the idea behind that one. And it does um, does give a, a chance for people who have pretty low scores on things like uh, equal justice and the like to have a, a bit of a leavening factor. Well, I'll go through their rankings. So we go... Abraham Lincoln, then George Washington, then Franklin Roosevelt, then Theodore Roosevelt, then Dwight 
Eisenhower, then Harry Truman, then Thomas Jefferson, then John F. Kennedy, then Ronald Reagan, then Lyndon Johnson, and that is the top 10. The 10 has not stayed the same since they first did the rankings in 2000. Although Lyndon Johnson at 10 is in the same place. He slipped down to 11 in 2009 and is back up in 2017 to 10. Reagan was in that 11th spot in 2000 and then moved up to 10. So he's the one that replaced Lyndon Johnson, which is funny because I think in his politics that was something that he probably wanted to do. You notice something at spot 11 where it's Woodrow Wilson, because in 2000 and 2009, Wilson was at 6th and ninth rank, respectively. So he's done some slipping. It's not a surprise. And particularly since one of the qualifications that C-SPAN uses is equal justice for all. So that's going to be, you know, I could see where he's going to suffer in that. Number 12, Barack Obama. Then James Monroe. James K. Polk. William J. Clinton. William McKinley. James Madison, Andrew Jackson, John Adams, George H.W. Bush makes number 20. So just on those, I'm going to note that James Madison has gone a little bit of a zigzag. In 2000, he was 18. 2009, he was 20. And in 2017, he was 17. Andrew Jackson has gone down in the rankings. He was 13 in 2000 and 18 in 2017. And John Adams um, went from, from 16 in 2000 to 19 in 2017. So I think you're seeing the results of maybe the McCullough effect dying out a bit, you know, the book and the movie. And then we're a couple years away from that now. Okay, coming in at 21, John Quincy Adams, Ulysses S. Grant, Grover Cleveland, William Howard Taft, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Calvin Coolidge, Richard Nixon, coming in at 28. He's moving down slightly from the 2000 survey where he was at 25. James Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, Zachary Taylor, Rutherford B. Hayes, George W. Bush, Martin Van Buren, Chester A. Arthur, Herbert Hoover, Millard Fillmore, William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, Warren Harding, Franklin Pierce, Andrew Johnson, James Buchanan. So you have your Buchanan last, Andrew Johnson second to last, Franklin Pierce right before him, Warren Harding right before him. You just can't help Buchanan, though, no matter how many indexes or how many lines we throw him or how we do the survey, whether we ask historians, whether we ask people what they're, who's the worst president. It's just there's, there's Jimmy B there at the bottom. <laughs> Bruce, as you probably know, if you go to the Smithsonian American History Museum here in uh, town, uh, <clears throat> you will see that they take a poll. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And the two top winners at all times when you're down there have nothing to do with performance. It has something to do with popularity. They're John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. And uh, you can see by the poll, and by the way, the numbers in our book are not secret. You can use any of them you want to because this poll was originally published in 2017. But on James Buchanan, you spent an entire podcast on him. What a, what an interesting character. Brian, talk about that interview you did on James Buchanan's biography, which is included. It was called Worst Period President Period Ever. I don't remember it. So oh, Brian, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, in terms of James Buchanan, the real quick thing, I, I, I didn't find the historians to be that wrong, even in a long hour and a half podcast or so. Um, I would say things like uh, there is one issue, for instance, if one is a proponent of immigration, then you find a friend in James Buchanan, and he's the number one, or or not number one, but perhaps number two, and he's close to Lincoln in terms of. Uh, if one has a pro-immigration uh, politic on so many other issues, performance-wise and 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 the like, um, taking action, uh, yeah, he he he's on he's in that space. But you have you have you come to the some of the similar conclusions. You know, you have Abraham Lincoln first. That doesn't change much in polls. Washington second. He did in your first poll. It looks like Franklin Roosevelt had edged him out, but then then lost the spot in the ranking. Washington's back up to number two. You have Theodore Roosevelt there. So some things don't surprise. There were some gains. Uh, you show what I think a lot of rankings show. Ulysses Grant gaining over time as people get away from thinking about some of the 19th century, say, corruption scandals in the um, Orville Babbick and the, um, other cases in his administration, um, and the, the whiskey ring and things like that and think more about how he handled reconstruction. So you have him moving up. Clinton's moved up. Reagan moved up a piece in your poll over that time since 2000. Well, what I like about the story we told through the eyes of Ronald White, who is, uh, Huntington Library Fellow about Grant, which is something that people probably don't know, is his, he was the first president elected with a non-white majority. You think that that's Barack Obama, but in fact, the popular vote he won in 1868 because 400,000 mm-hmm. African Americans voted for him. Uh, the next time around, most of those people were disenfranchised. Yes, yes, it's a terrible election, and uh, really, even by the by the next midterm, they had uh, unfortunately by 70, 1874 had gotten to most of those districts, and and the intimidation was intense. Yeah, so it's good to see a refocus. I just think that's the great thing. The bad part of ranking is that um, you know we have to pick a number for each of these people. As I, that's why I wanted to do one on on on. Buchanan, not to celebrate him so much, but just to investigate a bit. We've also done episodes on Franklin Pierce, a very similar situation where they're, you know, we're not uncovering much that the historians haven't found, but, you know, it's hard. Just giving a number to a president sometimes is not nuanced, but the good part of it is that uh, it, it really gives people uh, a form. It's, it's human nature to like games and rankings and 
competitiveness and of things and uh it just gives a forum for a discussion that might not otherwise uh otherwise take place well bruce let me ask you uh about uh, our our chapter on james buchanan is from an interview brian did with robert strauss who was a historian and a former journalist from Pennsylvania, like Buchanan was, what we included from him is that uh, the difference between good presidents and bad is that they were decisive men mm-hmm. and that Buchanan, throughout his history, was a waffler. Exactly. And I think that's what you were alluding to earlier. I think that some of the measures, whether it's 19th century, 18th century, 20th century, 21st, that'll always get you in trouble in any ranking, be it straight up or a nuanced ranking is lack of decisiveness. We, the constitutional convention called for a person with energy and dispatch. And if you don't show it, that's, that's always been, been an issue. You know, Washington, you you get the sense would have been someone where if there was a problem, it would be taken care of. Um, Jackson, people of different political stripes that wouldn't agree with each other. Lincoln, Jackson, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, you know, took action and so passiveness will will get you into get you into presidential ranking jail every time (laughs) i uh do you have do you have any uh, i would ask this to both of you do you have a particular favorite president or just a most interesting president i do not have a favorite president um and i can't tell you why i just never have clung is that a word clung cling to uh anybody in particular I worked around Lyndon Johnson uh, when I was in the Navy for two years, and I know I knew him up close. He he didn't know me because uh, he didn't pay attention to anybody that was around him. Certainly, somebody in a uniform. But it, that was the most incredible experience to be able to see how he operated, and everything you've heard about him and, and read about him is true. Uh, I mean, that's a big statement, but mm-hmm. I, I, I found I found him. And I worked in the Nixon administration, worked in both of them, and just being in those administrations, obviously, for me, is a, was an incredible learning experience, and it had nothing to do with whether I liked him or didn't like him. Brian, our featured historian for LBJ is Robert Dalek. You did those interviews. What do you remember about He He spent, what, five books of coverage? You mean Carol? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Carol. Oh, you got Carol. That's great. That's great. Yeah. That's worth a reading alone. Dalek is Kennedy. talk a bit about Lyndon Johnson. I think we get a little bit more into the finances of Lyndon Johnson. Robert Caro does the section on the book about him. Johnson's finances were supposed to be in a blind trust, but the people involved say it wasn't very blind. There was a law firm called Morrison and Ferguson. Morrison was one of the trustees of the blind trust, and his partner, Thomas Ferguson, who was a judge in the Texas Hill Country, would tell me, Carol, that it seemed almost every night Johnson was talking to Morrison and telling him what to do. There's a special telephone line in Morrison's home. You picked it up and you got the White House. Life magazine had found out about this. They had begun investigating. They started investigating Bobby Bobby Baker and campaign contributions, but they soon found it was leading to Lyndon Johnson. The very morning that Jack Kennedy is assassinated, there is a meeting in the offices of Life magazine to divide up the areas for a major series on what one of them calls Lyndon Johnson's money. And they're about to investigate. I- events, of course, forestalled this. When a man comes to Johnson and says, there's a reporter, Margaret Mayer, from the Dallas 
Times Herald, who sent me this list of questions. What do I do about it? Johnson telephones the managing editor of Meyer's newspaper and says, You don't want to be investigating me because someone might investigate you. And I don't know if he uses the word tax returns, but it's pretty clear what his meaning is. The managing editor named Albert Jackson is heard on the phone saying, Don't worry, we'll stop her. I'll talk to her next week. And Johnson says something like, Next week not good enough. It's a Saturday. Call me back tomorrow morning. And he does. Well, Carol is one of the most amazing stories in the history of writing. And I know, Bruce, you know who he is and what he does. And what I remember most is that this man spent the number of days, hours, years, time that he needed to spend to get beyond the obvious, get beyond what people want you to see. And that's the great thing about it. He's written 3,000 pages on LBJ, and he's got another book coming. Uh, and he it's just a great story. Anybody that likes history should be. Uh, dipping in on all of the Robert Caro efforts. What I remember from the chapter and our book on Robert Caro is uh, the very personal image that Caro puts of Lyndon Johnson after the assassination when he gets on the plane versus the Lyndon Johnson who walks off the plane and how observers said his entire stance changed. He sort of assumed the mantle of presidency. He used to be someone who would shuffle, a big kind of lumbering man, and as he took on this responsibility, you could see physical changes in him as he was trying to project strength to the world. That really stayed with me in that chapter. Well, I remember most of all when the day chewed me out. So you've had two different experiences. That sounds like that sounds like the LBJ unlike, we know. Unlike Brian, I don't have a favorite, but I've I have been intrigued for years with with Theodore Roosevelt mm -hmm. and uh, it, that's our chapter with Douglas Brinkley and what we chose was Wilderness Warrior which is his study of Theodore Roosevelt is essentially the leader, the initiator of the global conservation movement. Of course it's, it stems from his childhood interest in uh, ornithology and in and in dissecting animals, as a youth, his father was apparently a patron of the Museum of Natural History in New York City, so he came by this naturally. But Doug Brinkley tells an amazing story of him using the executive power of the presidency for the first time ever to put hundreds of thousands of acres into National Preserve and really created the National Park System, but did it from the point of view of a scientist because he was worried about species that were going extinct because of, for example, the interest in, in feathers as ornamentations for women's hats. That's what this book is really fun about, because it is not a contemporary or conventional history book. These are the historians, in their own words, telling stories, and it is really a book full of interesting stories. Yeah, it's a big book, and I think it's, a, it's of interest. Let me remind listeners that we're talking about The President's by Brian Lamb, Susan Swain, and C-SPAN. This uh, on Theodore Roosevelt, according to Douglas Brinkley. Roosevelt as president saw the last live passenger pigeon. There used to be 100 million passenger pigeons in America. It's an extinct species now. Roosevelt wrote the last observation of one in the wild. People shouldn't think of Roosevelt's conservation as a policy 
as much as a passion. The foresight and prescience that he had that we would not deforest ourselves, that we had to keep our rivers protected, that animals have to have habitats. Because he was influenced by Darwin, he believed that to lose a species of any kind was like losing a masterpiece of old. your favorite favorite i think like i just become as ordinary as anyone and go to to theodore roosevelt most interesting i think chester arthur and that transformation from being a real boss machine type politician to uh, ushering in civil rights legislation and i should say civil service uh, legislation although uh, in his early career he also had a, a as a lawyer had a factor in civil rights representing African Americans in New York and so there's a lot of a lot more story there to Chester Arthur than gets heard he was a bit of a dandy too and he brought some style to the to the White House uh before the Kennedys arrived uh, and 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 things like that and I think there's a there's a you know generally the the I like I like books like this and just discussing the presidents from that period because they don't get as much attention there isn't as much time for those presidents in the uh in the normal history lesson and you know people may read into that that they weren't important presidents but i don't think that's always the case they did some they did some big things one question i had since i have you on is just your network was one of the first to kind of have to navigate you have the phone in shows the numbers you know by democrats republicans others and sort of have to navigate polarization of our times uh, are we more polarized than say when you began the network or are we just about the same? Well, you know, we were very polarized when we started. Mm. Uh, you had Ronald Reagan as president, and there was a love-hate relationship on the part of the populace. Uh, we heard it, we've heard it for years on our call-in shows. Uh, this is an unusual presidency right now because of the new technology, the Twitter and mm. the, uh, things like that. But, you know, we've always been polarized as a society. You know that. You're a, yeah. you're a historian. You've You've read all about the, the past. I mean, there's nobody that got beaten up more than Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, some of the things, that, some of those cartoons uh, calling him a gorilla or things like this, uh, definitely, uh, yeah, we, we, we haven't changed. And some of that was his own party. I mean, then you get to the opposition party after you're done with that. I think it's a, it's a great thing that you do. I think a, there's a lot of people who do watch, millions of people who really rely on C-SPAN. It's a great work that you do. Anything else that we didn't discuss about this book or about the rankings that you'd you'd like to? Brian, you really want to emphasize the, the many historians. We've got 43 of them here. But this network has really had an important partnership with historians over the years. Why is that something we want to celebrate? And that's the purpose of these books is mm -hmm. to celebrate the authors because um, Susan is a writer and an editor. I'm not. Uh, I just ask questions and learn. And it, it, anytime you can put a spotlight in the society of today on people that do research, that think through, the, it, and it's very difficult to do these books. Uh, anytime you can put a spotlight on them, we're, we're better off for it. 
And I'm just hoping that even though we are a society of cliques and all that stuff, that the young people will eventually, as they get older, get more interested in in, uh, in depth. Because the only way you really learn is in depth. We're lucky to be here. We don't make money for anybody. Our cable television uh, industry representatives have been supportive over the years. It's totally the money from their corporations and not the money from uh, the government. Mm -hmm. And people miss that. And that's an important part of our legacy. It's great work that you do. Brian Lamb and Susan Swain, thanks so much for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, President's Book from C-SPAN here, published by Public Affairs Press. And you, you hear a lot of authors from that publishing house on this program. They've been very cooperative with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Brian and Susan, thanks so much for coming on. Thank, Thank you. you, Bruce. Nice to talk to you. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.